Welcome to Inside the Lens, Episode 9. I'm your host, Don Komarechka, and this is the podcast where we dive fairly deep into a specific topic or inside the mind of a photographer or somebody within the photographic industry. Sometimes we can be incredibly technical, scientific, or philosophical, and I think today we might hit a lot of those different points in different ways. My guest today is somebody that is celebrating an anniversary of sorts. And uh, it's a really uh, sort of a, a, a powerful moment, I think, to look back over 50 years within the photographic industry uh, from every level, from being a, a lab tech all the way up to executive people. And the decisions made along the way, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the lessons learned from that. So to dive into all of this, I have my good friend Skip Cohen on the call. Skip, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm sitting here kind of amazed today because it the fact that 50 years has gone by like a blink uh, just blows me away. But along with that, I can't believe how much the industry, our lives have changed. Uh, it's it's just a kick. It's so dramatic, at least in the last two decades, how everything has so dramatically changed. I, I just was was looking back at some of the earliest digital cameras for a little fun project that I'm doing to try and get a camera from like the mid to late 90s and shoot with it for a day just to see what I could do. And while that's not going to yield anything technically great, I'm wondering if uh, the artistry could still be there at that time, that infancy of the digital photography realm. But your uh, your space in photography started much earlier than that, uh, all the way back in the uh, the 1970s, I believe, at Polaroid. Uh, <laughs> that's exactly where it started. By the way, did you find a camera? An older I, digital camera? I did. I actually tracked okay. down the very first camera that Panasonic ever produced. Uh, the, okay. If I remember, the, the KXL600A, which is the, a, uh, an impressive resolution of 480 by 360, I think. Okay. If you decide you want to play with whatever the Kodak was, one was, it was two megapixels. And if I remember right, it was around $1,200. Um, <laughs> I've, got, I've got one here. Happy, and it's funny happy because that, to send old, it your way. that old Panasonic camera uses compact flash memory cards. Right. It, it comes right. with a two megabyte compact flash memory card. And I, I, it might be compatible in like a, I was shooting with a 1DX for many years. I should just try to see if I can even get one photo on that card. It's so funny um, though, when you <laughs> hold a compact flash card now, doesn't it? It feels like a matchbook. I mean, it's, it it's huge. It's yeah. like, what, what are we going to do with this? <laughs> so, so yes if, i started a polaroid in 1970 and uh, describe to me your beginnings why did you get into the industry was it just like a first job kind of it thing? was a first it was a first job i had been thrown out of college which i'm very open about um i was every parent's nightmare there were so many things that i mean i just i shouldn't have been in college period um, but at that time also it was vietnam and college was a deferment. And a lot of people, if they were fortunate enough to go to college, hit college just to stay out of the draft. And that was essentially the story in my, in my family. I went to Miami of Ohio, which was a tough school to get into, but I'd been very active, not so much in good grades in high school, but active in, in extracurricular activities. And that was one of the things that made me look more well-rounded than I really was. And off I went to college. If I got a class that I loved, I did well in it. If I got something that was a requirement, uh, it, it was horrible. I mean, I snuck in and took advanced 
psychology courses, for example, but try and get me to take Psych 101. It just wasn't going to happen. And finally, after uh, several rounds of being on academic suspension, because I'd go on academic suspension, I'd have to come back for a semester. I'd work really hard. Once I even made Dean's List, and then once I was clear again and I wasn't going to get drafted because I was going to be thrown out of college, um, I'd, I'd let it slip again and I'd go another semester. The bottom line is that that it gave me a great foundation in terms of knowing what not to do and some strong lessons learned. But in the end, um, when they finally said it was time to go, I needed a job. My girlfriend, uh, who I later married, lived in Boston. Uh I had a friend of my a friend of my parents had had grown up in Boston and had a buddy at Polaroid that was fairly high up in engineering. He got me an interview and I started on February 6, 1970 as I think it was called a Lab Tech at Lab Tech it was either Lab Tech B or Lab Tech 2. Um, washing so- bottles, washing bottles in emulsion development. You have, uh, from the time that I've, I've known you for the, the past few years, um, you have a lot of really you know, brilliant ideas and, and you come about communicating them on a very uh, human level without overcomplicating things. And so to have that intellect, I'm sure it, it had existed even back then based on what you just described uh, during your college years, um, but it was misdirected or just undirected because you didn't really want to be in certain positions. So then you find yourself at Polaroid and your well, first hang job. Hang on one second there. There's a difference between, and th- this is what I think a lot of parents miss today um, when you're sending a kid off to college. If you don't know what you want to do and if you're not fortunate enough to have any kind of direction and you're just going off to school because everybody else has gone off to school, um, that doesn't work. And there's a difference between being stupid and being lazy. I yep. wasn't stupid. I just didn't. I couldn't see how I was going to use a particular course. And I was there because I had to be there, but it wasn't because I wanted to be there. And the truth is that had I been drafted and gone into the army, it probably would have been the best thing for me because I would have had to focus and grow up. Well, so. I, I, I can really relate. My first uh, endeavor in post-secondary education was a software development degree. And I flunked out of that in the second year. I mean, it just, it, it, I realized that it wasn't for me. Yes, I could learn it, but did I want to? No, right. absolutely not. Right. Um, and so I, I was just kind of framing you in the sense of you've got this intellect and it's not finding its right space. And then you find yourself at Polaroid, at least in the initial job, you know, washing, you know, jugs and beakers and stuff sounds relatively menial as well. How did you cope? Well, first of all, Paul, it, it wasn't menial in terms of, you know, I'm making two eighty nine an hour. I'm getting time and a half. I'm getting a premium if I well, for a few months when I work the uh, B shift, which is three to eleven at night, uh, double time on Sunday. And washing the bottles, that's where it all started. But then it got into some interesting experiments. And while I wasn't interested in chemistry, I was working for a very patient, wonderful PhD chemist slash engineer who just thought he could teach me all this stuff. And I, I did. I mean, it's one thing when you start to lose the, learn the formulas and you've just got to plug things back in. It's almost like, it's almost like working on a website. It's, it's working by templates. So I've got the formula. I know what I've got to do. 
And there were some really interesting things there. And he kept promoting me and kept giving me more responsibility. But Polaroid also had an internal posting system. And I remember one year where I actually bid out on 63 different jobs within Polaroid because I wanted to get into HR. I thought that was the only way I could ever work with people, not, not, not beakers and chemicals. And this is way back in the days before OSHA. I mean, we would finish an experiment. We were working with what's called hydroquinone dyes, which sounds like a really big word. But the only what were way these to experiments, wash- yeah. yeah, like what was the purpose of them? Um, Edgar was Edgar was working on crystal development, uh, and based on the size and shape of the crystals in the emulsion, these are silver halide crystals. The more area that the crystal had, as opposed to just a, a flat surface and virtually no edge. If he could make cubes, for example, it gave you more exposure area. And in turn, it would make the emulsion more sensitive. So the emulsion that was going into, I I have no idea whether or not anything that I ever worked on tied directly into SX-70 or if it was more back in the peel apart Polaroid, but the better emulsion, the better, I don't know how to put this, the more different the emulsions were, the more different the film would behave um, in the finished product. So that was the, that was the purpose of it. And that was before SX-70 had been introduced. And like I said, this is back before OSHA. So at the end of the day, we would fill up the sink with acetone and literally soak our arms in it, um, to get the dye off because you couldn't. And I knew when I got home, if I, depending on what color it came out, when I blew my nose, be it yellow, cyan, or uh, magenta, that's what we worked on that day. So again, wow. pre-OSHA, um, and yet it was. None of us ever felt like it wasn't safe. We were we were in. I mean, my the lab that I worked in was called an explosion-proof lab because of the solvents and things we were working on. Um, and it sounds very high tech, and it was for Edgar, but for me, it was just. I mean, it was it was fun following a recipe and putting this stuff together. But I wanted. From the very beginning, I wanted to get out and work on something with people. I got caught in in a layoff. I, I actually got into personnel, which was wonderful. And suddenly I'm, I'm handling interviewing and placement for other managers and other positions at Polaroid. Remember, Polaroid back then was over 20,000 people. So globally, it was one of the largest companies, certainly in the world and, and definitely in New England. And now you're talking about Polaroid and I'm in personnel, which later became, this is even before it was called HR. And I got caught in a layoff and I was the low man on the totem pole. And because I had been hourly before I had bumping rights back into um, the hourly sector of the company. And I was a, because I was in personnel, I had access to a lot of different jobs and could see what was out there. And I bumped into customer service and that really changed everything. It was that layoff going into customer service, which led to uh, camera repair supervisor, which led to services manager in Chicago, which led to, oh, back to Cambridge and two and a half years overseas as the customer service manager for Polaroid, um, home home for, for three weeks and out for two um, in Europe and the Asia Pacific. And then it was the photo specialty dealer manager for all the U.S. Uh, camera stores. And that so was the you, connection to Hasselblad. 
Right. So you you were rising through the ranks at Polaroid, and uh, of course with the, the layoff and switching gears uh, numerous times. I, you said you wanted to deal with people. And uh, again, being in the customer service branch of things, you fulfill that goal as well. Um, and you're a very personable person. Uh, and, and I can see why that would have been one, uh, a goal. But you would have also been, uh, even back when you were uh, choosing to hire people for specific jobs, making very important decisions uh, that would have an impact on the future of the company uh, for uh, yeah, different product launches, for you know c- uh, customer service issues and problems that might come up. Let's get into some of those, I think, at Polaroid okay. um, before we go into Hasselblad. Uh, I know, uh, based on our previous discussions, that it wasn't all rosy at certain days within Polaroid, especially around uh, the launch of the SX-70, which was a remarkable product, um, but also uh, didn't really perform up to expectations, at least the first bunch of them. Uh, and I know you've told me some stories about that before. I don't know how much detail you can go into, though. Well, I don't. Uh, Polaroid is is long gone uh, the Polaroid that exists today is not the same Polaroid, but those first 10,000 cameras, we were told, were running about 300% defective, meaning so each that- one of those 10,000 SX-70s came back multiple times and had the internet existed back then, um, I'm not sure Polaroid would have survived. And I know that's a, a lofty statement to make, but you know, as an example, they were very concerned about a class action lawsuit and I was living in Chicago as the camera repair supervisor in Oak Brook, Illinois. And I got a call one night from our manager, a customer service manager in Cambridge, who said, I need you on a plane tomorrow morning to Detroit. We've got a woman that we're worried about who may be considering suing Polaroid in a class action suit. And she's having trouble with her SX-70. And I literally got on a plane the next morning, flew to Detroit. And did what we were what we called was a roving rep call, and you, you I mean, were doing house calls as a I was, camera. It was a house call, exactly. <laughs> I mean, remember again, there was no internet. Just having an eight hundred line was a big deal. And the problem this woman had was she had her eyesight was terrible. Um, she had very thick glasses, and she couldn't always see to focus. And the problem with those early SX seventies was that it was a follow focus flash system. So, Don, if I were taking a picture of you, but by mistake, I have set the focus more on your ears than the front plane of your face, you would be completely blown out. And it was just too sensitive. Well, that kind of problem led to a, uh, a, foot, a distance ring that they put on the front of the camera on the lens so that you could dial in your estimated distance. And then other changes that came. I mean, a, a year later, the camera was phenomenal. But that was one of those issues that that was just hadn't been addressed. And to have that kind of response, it was an amazing product. I was there when Dr. Land introduced it uh, to, they did the shareholders meeting on one day. And then a day or two later, they did it for all the employees. And there was a, I mean, there were thousands of people sitting there as he reached into his jacket pocket and pulled out an SX-70. And it was just remarkable. And the technology was remarkable. The compactness of the SX-70 was its real selling point, right? And and so, well, could you describe, I mean, what uh, Polaroid was doing before then to what this transition to uh, SX-70 and beyond really meant uh, in terms of the industry changing? 
Well, it's, it totally changed instant photography. Remember prior to that, and for years after, instant photography was about peel apart film. Mm -hmm. Um, and you'd have people that would be, that would, that would come out of the camera and they'd be waving it. The reality is that when you went to SX-70, you suddenly had the image come up, um, in front of you because it was, uh, an SLR, you had a different level of, of accuracy, uh, with the flash system. Um, it was different. I mean, it started out with flash bars and then later on the, uh, SX-70 sonar came in and it was. Um, it was a built-in flash and sonar technology for autofocus, which was a big deal then. So the initial ones, um, I mean, if you look back, they were really very basic, but the technology changed so much in terms of the images that people could now capture and then watch it to, you know, watch it develop in front of you. And as the camera got better and the film got better, um, the processing time improved as well. But then you yeah, had that's a still whole, something yeah. that, uh, uh, in terms of chemistry, I mean, uh, the Impossible Project revived the Polaroid yep. film, um, yep. and then uh, their uh, parent company now owns the rights to the Polaroid name, so now they're called Polaroid again, not still the same company. And I've got some Polaroid film. I bought some on uh, uh, it was a Black Friday sale, and it does not develop quickly. Uh, even now, I, I guess the 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 science, the knowledge, the secrets are are lost. Even if you have the rights to them, uh, if they've just disappeared, you have to re-engineer things. And I'm sure some of those original chemicals uh, would probably be so hazardous they couldn't be used today. Um, but it was cutting edge technology. But it does develop faster than it did when it first came out, and that's yeah, that's my true. that's my reference point. I mean, today we're we live in an instant fulfillment world. You shoot something digitally, you see it right away. And you're looking at the back of your camera, and as we all know, we're chimping, and we're well. We're and a look at that I image. guess this was uh, the the inception of that back uh, back when the SX70 really kind of revolutionized right. the way that we had instant photography uh, to to a great degree. It, it's why a lot of people that are nostalgic about film continue to enjoy instant photography from a number of companies, including Fuji, that's making uh, quite a bit of profit in that area today. Yeah, but but you had asked earlier about lessons. One of the lessons yes. that came out of those early customer service days, um, first of all, was it, it's an expression I still use today. You've got two ears and one mouth, so listen twice as much as you talk. And when it came to customer service, and we were taking calls all day long on the 800 line, especially the in the days after Christmas, we would handle thousands of calls from people who wow. didn't read directions, even to the point <laughs> where we had... We had somebody glue the exit slot shut on the SX-70 because he didn't think the film should, it was coming out in the wrong place. It was meant to come out just between the leather and the brush chrome frame uh, finish of the camera body. And he glued it shut. We had somebody else who put the camera in, in, in a kitchen sink to wash it because um, it was dirty and couldn't understand. What do you mean? it? <laughs> What do you uh, mean? A, cam a camera is just a box uh -oh. with a lens, right? Yeah. And then we had fun <laughs> things like somebody calling in and saying, I'm going on a cruise. Can I take my Polaroid land camera? Um, which, I mean, those, those. I have became... a 900 land camera somewhere right. in the back of my That's studio. I mean, they were massive. Sure, you can take it, but yeah, yeah you can use it on the water as well. <laughs> but when somebody, one of the things I, I talked about with, with learning to, to listen, somebody would call in and say, my, my pictures don't come out. Well, does that mean 
that you can't see any image after it's come out of the camera? Does it mean it didn't come out of the camera? Does it mean that that the whole frame is just black or is it white because it's totally overexposed? You have to define, you have to listen and understand what it is somebody's, what it is they're actually saying. And then the second thing was learning how to diffuse an angry customer. And I still use this today. When somebody is really upset, uh, you have to kick back and just say, I can't blame you for being upset. The buck stops here. How can I help? And then just listen. And that was one of those lessons that followed me, still follows me today. You can't, you know, you've got a time bomb there with somebody who's very upset. They just spent a lot of money. We actually had somebody, I remember once, um, somebody attempting to sue Polaroid as the third party in their divorce because the camera didn't work. The wife said something and the husband threw the camera at her. So Polaroid was going to be a contributing member of the, uh, of the team that was being sued because the camera hadn't worked and that's why their marriage was falling apart. They were just amazing. (laughs) They were just, there were very silly, amazing things that would happen and they still happen today. I mean, it, it happens with other products and consumers are consumers and you won't always get the most rational person on the other end of the line or in front of you at a trade show, for example. Oh, I, and even like I've done years of uh, working retail uh, pre and, and during my college years. And man, people can treat you like an object, uh, an object that is an obstacle to what their goal is. And they don't treat you like a person, but you still have to treat them uh, very much like a person and understand that any complaints that they have have to be handled on a personal level, uh, even if they're yelling at you in some inhuman kind of way. Uh, Almost like diffusing them with kindness and by listening and doing everything that you can, even if you can't solve their problem. uh, Because I mean... I, I never made it to management and retail. I went the photographic route, but I would have to defer, right? And you could do as much as you possibly can to get a calm person in front of a manager that might be able to sort something out. Right. Um, and, and that's, I mean, customer service 101, I suppose. Uh, were you always in customer service at that point in Polaroid? Um, at that point in Polaroid from about uh, 75, 76, 77, um, Oh, maybe it was a little bit earlier. Sorry. I'm just trying to look back. Um, from that from that year after SX-70 was introduced, whatever year that was, um, I was in customer service. Later, that grew into the sales marketing side when I was manager for Polaroid's photo specialty dealers, which is also what the what 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 got a headhunter to look at my background and call me one day about Hasselblad. Well, let's before we get into Hasselblad, which I really want to talk about. Uh, in those final days in uh, in Polaroid, before you made the jump over, what was the industry doing, and uh, was there any lessons learned before you uh, you switched companies? Yeah, there were there were a couple of good ones learned. Um, one was never sweep anything under the rug. If you if you made a mistake and you owned it, just admit it and tell people how you were going to fix it. And we did have a problem when I was the manager in Chicago. And the Kentucky driver's license program was one of mine. We had a screw up on a weekend where we didn't have coverage and somebody's system went down in, in Kentucky and we weren't on top of it. And before that, that Monday morning or Tuesday morning, again, this is back to faxes and phone calls and mailing uh, memos. So there's no internet at this point. 
And the fault was the fault was mine. I hadn't paid attention. I knew exactly what the problem was and where I had missed it. And I remember somebody saying, making the comment to me that that I could um, the extra expression was I could fall in and still come out smelling like a rose. And it wasn't that I did anything. I just published an e- a, a memo to all the senior managers involved saying, here's what happened this weekend. You're going to hear it anyway. And here's what I missed. And here's what we've put in place. And I wound up getting accolades for that. And I was, I, I was worried, was I going to lose my job? But you can't keep, you can't keep secrets, especially in business like that. Yeah. So, you have to be honest. Yeah. And uh, if, if you had tried to hide it, and it came back and bit you, it would bite so much harder than if you were just honest about it to begin with. Right. Um, The other lesson was, instead of trying to work in a a vacuum, uh, I was part of a team that put together some amazing marketing programs. uh, When I was on the marketing side in in my last move while at Polaroid, and people would say to me, how did you come up with that? How did you think of that idea? Well, I didn't. I would go out to the reps and I'd say, all right, if we had to double your quota next year, what would it take for you to reach your number? And then just kick back and listen. And they tell you exactly what they needed to sell more. And I would walk into a retailer and say, all right, next year, I want you to do triple the business that you did with Polaroid this past year. What will it take? And after you pick them up off the floor, they would come right out and tell you. And and they'll say, well, I need more advertising, I need dating, I need pricing, I need promotional material, we need we need better TV advertising or print advertising, I need a flyer, I need a better display in my store. All the answers were out there. And to this day, I've said to photographers, if you're having trouble in your market and you're trying to figure out how to build your business, then start talking to your clients. Uh, I've got a an old friend who's a realtor in Las Vegas. And he goes out when he loses a listing, he will contact that, that homeowner and say, listen, I appreciate that you went with somebody else, but I'm trying to build a stronger business. Can you just tell me what, what we didn't have that the other company did? And then you just sit and listen. And those answers, those answers are all there. Yeah, and a lot of people will just uh, move on to whatever the next opportunity is without fully fleshing out exactly how much could be learned from any potential failure or mistake right. along the way. And yeah, even in the sort of mad scientist experimental photography stuff that I do, you do one of the reasons I didn't well, know that. <laughs> yeah, one of the reasons why I enjoy it is because I get to revel in my mistakes. I actually right. get to use that as as a point of enjoyment. Well, something didn't work. Okay, now I have a puzzle to solve, uh, and I like puzzles. But even in building uh, my own business, uh, the, the first workshops that I had done, um, they were through my local college here. And there was a feedback form. I mean, it was basically continuing education. If you were a warm body in a seat, you'd get you'd get a pass, right? I don't get to grade anybody, but they get to grade me. And so I had heard from a good number of people that said very positive things. Uh, One person that had been in education his entire life said that it was one of the greatest courses that he ever had compacted into a short period of time. Everything was really easy to learn. And I thought, well, that's great. That doesn't help me. That tells me what I'm doing right. The only way that I can get better is if you tell me what I'm doing wrong or ways right. that I could improve. Uh, and I, I, 
I didn't force them, but I asked very genuinely in your feedback, be positive, sure, but be constructive because this is a starting point and it has to get better from here. And the feedback was phenomenal. And I was able to adjust my course material because of it. Uh, if I didn't ask for that, and if everybody just said, oh yeah, this was great. Well, I'll just do the same thing next time and I'll be stagnant. And you don't want to be, and you don't want to be stagnant. Exactly. There's that, so, there's that old line that Thomas Edison has created uh, that is credited for that goes something like, I haven't failed 10,000 times. I just found 10,000 things that don't work. Exactly. I probably, yes. I probably butchered it just now. But Well, I think he gist. was working on some battery technology at the time right. that in the end never actually panned out in any way. Right. Um, but he did literally thousands of experiments with, uh, with different ingredients and, and chemical combinations. Um, but there's knowledge, uh, at least from an engineering standpoint, in mistakes as there is in a marketing standpoint. And you were the marketing guy sort of at this point, and you were building yourself up to the point where you were such a valued commodity that you were headhunted into Hasselblad, right? Well, I got a cold call one day. I was manager of Polaroid specialty dealers, which were all the camera stores. And each of the channels, be it be it food, uh, drug stores, if you think about every place of Polaroid, that Polaroid film and cameras could be sold, um, we were probably one of the smaller channels, but very identifiable. And Hasselblad at the time, uh, Roland Polum, who was the president before me for Hasselblad USA had passed away and they were searching for a new president of the company. I didn't know anything about Hasselblad. In fact, I got a cold call one day from a headhunter saying, uh, I'm calling to see if you know of anybody that might be interested in being president of a small camera company. I thought it was my brother-in-law, Russell said, Russell, you know, kiss my See you at Moz for dinner later. <laughs> and as I'm hanging up the phone, I hear this voice yelling, no, no, no. And he gave his name and um, it was all legitimate. And that was the, that, that totally changed my life. That was, uh, I started in July of 1987. And that, so that opened up a whole new door, which I, I cherish to this very day. You had more than a decade and a half at Polaroid. Right. And, uh, and I'm sure that was such a huge, you know, amount of personal and professional growth for you, uh, as the stories go to the point now where you find yourself, uh, at the head of a company, Hasselblad, uh, I mean, it's the, the name, especially during the eighties and nineties was very, very highly regarded. Now they're owned by a drone company out of China. And so, you know, times change uh, as things go on. But during that time when you were there, uh, you were also facing some transitional uh, things. People maybe wanting smaller cameras, as you saw at, at Polaroid. Uh, people wanting to evolve the photographic arts in many different ways. So when you were just kind of uh, thrown into this new scenario, what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced and, uh, and lessons learned in those first few years? Oh, my God. Well, first of all, keep in mind that I came into Hasselblad knowing nothing about professional photography. And I remember good friends. Uh, in fact, Tony Corbell and Dean Collins were, were two of the first guys that I started working with. And I remember them thinking, oh, great. We've got the new president of Hasselblad. His name is Skip. And next thing you know, Hasselblad's going to be out there at Kmart. And I came in knowing very little about the business. It was an incredible staff. The, the people at Hasselblad then were, it was such an amazing group. And my, my partner and our VP of, of 
finance um, who had responsibility and replaced me when I left years later. Al Zimmerman was incredible to work with. Um, Ernst Wildey, the legendary professor, was there. Carl Clausen was in service. Chuck Gutierrez, I'm in sales. And later that grew to other people that came in. Uh, Bob Nunn came in out of AGFA. I mean, there were so many different people involved that the company kept growing. Now, we were a third of their worldwide business. And one of the lessons I learned very early on, I was probably with the company about six months. And one of the trade publications, there was a a trade publication by the name of PTN, Photo Trade News. And they sent a reporter out, or maybe he may have called me, I don't remember, but they did an interview with me about, all right, so what's the new president of Hasselblad thinking? And I went ahead and just had diarrhea of the mouth. And I told them every single thing that we wanted to do. And we wanted to get more active in the schools. And we wanted to find a lower price point to get more people into Hasselblad. And we wanted stronger distribution. I mean, you name it. I told them everything that we had talked about building the company. And then when the article came out, my ego was sky high until I realized that night, oh my God, I just telegraphed everything that we want to do to our competitors. And it was just, it was arrogance. It was ego. It was, look at my picture in PTN. Um, That's back when Mamiya America was just getting started. So the Mac group was just getting going with Henry Froelich. Um, And Henry was just an incredible, wonderful person, great competitor. Then you also had GMI with Bronica. And then you had Pentax out there with 645. And he, here we were strictly um, six by six in a square format and at the high point pricing wise. So the first thing I learned was that, again, it goes back to listen more than you talk. I had, I had given everybody our, our secrets. Um, the other thing I learned early on, I remember um, I was hired by a gentleman by the name of Jerry Oster, who was the worldwide president and CEO in Sweden. And in those first two months, Jerry would call me every day and say, how's everything going? And I'd say terrific, because to me, it was terrific. I'm getting to know the people. I'm getting to know the salesmen. Um, At that point, I'd made a couple of visits to um, the field and been out at retailers. I'd even been at the White House. This is back around the time when Howard Baker was Reagan's chief of staff and Baker was a um, Hasselblad shooter. And he was just wonderful. And I had called the retailer who he normally bought from in D.C., Penn Cameron, said, hey, next time the senator comes in, give me a yell. If you know he's coming in, I'll come down and let's take him to lunch. Well, Baker invited me to the White House along with our sales rep um, to his house for lunch, which was pretty phenomenal. So Hasselblad had this incredibly huge reputation, and there I am trying to keep my ego in check and just paying attention to what the market is doing and working with Sweden to try and do all those things that I had said we were going to do, but now not quite talk about them so much. Well, and, and you also have your competition, as you mentioned, Mamiya, Pentax, Bronica, and others, um, that we're all fitting into different spaces uh, in terms of uh, the, the frame size, but more importantly, the cost, right? Absolutely, so the cost. Pen- Pentax was uh, quite a significant amount less expensive than Hasselblad, if memory serves, in that era. Oh, yeah. Pentax was. So was Bronica. I mean, the, the reality was that when, when you went out, if you were just getting started 
And if you had wanted to start with Hasselblad, um, you had to have a nice little nest egg build up to start. And if you were just coming out of photographic school and you wanted to shoot medium format and felt it was important to your career, then the best place to start at the time really was, you know, Bronica. We would, we would get people that would trade up once their business was going and once they could afford us. In fact, I remember being yelled at by a retailer who felt that Tony Corbell didn't spend enough time talking specifically about Hasselblad when he did a program out there. And my response was, we don't need to sell Hasselblad. They know who we are, but if we can help them become better photographers and business owners, we'll get our fair share later on. And that kind of became the foundation for a lot of things we did with Hasselblad University and other programs we did to try and help photographers raise their skill set. And maybe that's also where I got my foundation and passion for education, which is alive and well today. And it is all thanks to people like like Tony and, and Ernst and so many different photographers that we worked with over the years to, to do these programs on the road with Hasselblad University. And you know, that makes perfect sense. If somebody is making more money, then they can afford more expensive right. camera gear. So that works really well. Um, but did Hasselblad look at uh, at saying, okay, well, we need some of this uh, 645 market. Uh, we need to sort of diversify. We need less expensive options in order to um, fulfill the entire market. Or did they just want to stay in that specific niche? No, they were looking, they were interested in that. In fact, it, it's... It's one of the saddest days in my life is when we lost a gentleman by the name of Bengt Forsbeck, who was the VP of marketing for Hasselblad in Sweden. And Bengt and I started out as diehard enemies yelling at each other so much in a board meeting that Jerry had to stop the meeting once and, and take a break so that we could regain our composure. But we became the very, very best and, and dearest of friends. And working with Bengt, Al and I spent a lot of time with the fact that Hasselblad needed a stronger entry-level camera. And what came out of that wasn't so much a new camera, but the 500 Classic, which was a 500cm body that was sold complete with an A12 magazine and an 80 millimeter lens, that became a great way to get people into the system at, it was under 2000, which was still a lot, but at 1995, that was kind of Hasselblad's first step at at a kit configuration that brought the price down and we did really well with it because once you got into the system, then obviously you'd want to add um, more lenses to it. You're going to add another magazine. Very rarely would anybody go out with just one A12 magazine or and a that's 24. a profit center, right? Because yeah. if you have uh, an accessory like a magazine, the cost to manufacture versus the cost that it's sold at is uh, the, the margins are much greater than on a lens or a camera body themselves, I would assume. Yeah. Well, the accessory line for a lot of retailers made money, but that's also where we came up with um, one of the first MAP programs in the industry, MAP standing for minimum advertised price. And those are alive and well in a lot of different companies today where your retailers are allowed to advertise a product, but in order for them to earn whatever benefits they get as a retailer, they've got to put it out there in the same price when they're publishing it. Now, what they do in the store is another issue in how they sell it. But, you know, we, we came up with a good map program. Um, and then you had asked about other formats. And this is kind of a funny story because the H series started out as it was going to be out there at 
a fraction. If if I remember right, it was going to be somewhere between I want to say a thousand and fifteen hundred. We were getting beaten up on six forty five, and people were jumping into six forty five. The square format was becoming less and less effective as a selling tool. And I went to a literally a one day meeting in Tokyo with my counterpart from the UK and one of the largest distributors who in fact became an an owner of Hasselblad in this transition over the years as they went from one holding company to another. Um, And I can't remember who else was in the the meeting, but the whole topic was the original H-series and how that was going to come out at at a much lower price point because it was meant to be entry level. Now, by the time it finally came out two years later or even longer, uh, my personal feeling is it had been a little over-engineered and the price point had changed, but the industry was changing so much then too. So there was- well, They added a lot of bells yeah. and whistles onto it. Right. It was not uh, a simplistic camera. If no, no. And every one of those bells and whistles um, created another challenge. And- I mean, we would regularly get into arguments in in board meetings because we had one president for a very short time after after Jerry who wanted us to take a price increase on a particular camera, and it hadn't been delivered yet. It had been shown at Photokina. We had orders for it in-house, and the pricing was going to go up for the second time, I believe, and we hadn't delivered a single one. And we got into an argument on that. We had another one where he wanted to drop the pricing to load in more equipment, uh, more more inventory into the dealers. And I made a comment at that time. Uh, I mean, B&H, Adorama, Calumet, um, Sammy's, Keeble and Shuck in San Francisco. These were all big retailers who had inventory. And now you're sitting there and you're fighting over the fact of, wait a minute, you're going to sell in at a cheaper price than what they bought in their previous inventory. And that's where you start to learn about price protection. Um, And there was one more lesson I learned. I learned something at Polaroid that uh, it was called, it was called, in fact, today it's still called the same thing, a dealer loader. So you come up with a great package to kick off the year and to get ready for, for the new year ahead of you, or maybe you're doing it in in August or September to, to create excitement over holiday sales um, as you go into November, December. And we had a program where it was an incredible dealer loader. And we had, it was, part of it was one to show, one to go. So when you bought one camera to have as a demo unit, which you were allowed to sell off a year later, you were able to buy another camera at a discount. Well, we loaded up our, our dealers and I was an absolute hero wow, look at what look at what Skip did, and it's only year two. Well, at year three, um, it was horrible because the reality is that anybody can load a retailer, but the reality is no company makes any money until the product sells through. Right. So it's easy to, to push it in, but it's more important to pull it through. And I missed a point before. I was talking about another thing I learned. Jerry Oster would call and say, how's everything? And I'd say, outstanding because it was. And then one month we had a bad month and Jerry said, wait a minute, you told me everything was outstanding. Well, Jerry was only interested in one thing. How are sales? Right. And I'm saying well, it's, and, and it's outstanding. Perspective. Right. And I'm saying it's outstanding because I've met all our employees and, and I know their names now and, <laughs> and I'm meeting <laughs> retailers. Um, but it had nothing to do with how the company was doing. And that goes and, into another one about, you know, 
listen more than you talk and understand what somebody's asking you. Of course, of course. And understanding where their questions are coming from, you know, what their goals are versus your own goals. Um, you know, it, it came into, uh, I believe it was in the 90s when uh, Fujifilm came out with their TX1, which was a um, uh, a wide panorama uh, camera, but it was in a 35 millimeter format. And uh, and so that was kind of a revolutionary product for them. Uh, and and it also brings about how Hasselblad took a look at that and said sort of, uh, me too. Uh, could you tell me about the, uh, the history uh, of the X-Pan? Oh, I can't tell you very much because in the, to begin with, I was against it and I was dead wrong. You know, I was looking for, come on guys, you know, help us bring the price down on our, on our core system, which was, which was medium format. It was the 500 CM, the 500, the 503 CX and CXW were out then. Um, we had the 180 lens, which is still one of my most favorite pieces of glass. And you got to remember, I am not a working photographer. So when I say my favorite piece of glass, um, I know more than I let on. But the fact that a lot of pros said, oh, my God, this is what a, you know, what a great lens. Um, that made me feel good, too. So we're dealing with that. And they come out and they show us the X-Pan. And initially, I was really I was I was unhappy. It's like, how are we going to get to where we need to go when we've got this new camera here? I can't give you a lot of background on it. I know once it did come out, um, we did very well with it. The reality is you, you were shooting two frames of 35 millimeter and suddenly you had a panoramic camera that could also take infrared, um, which was another benefit there. And you had the quality optics that Hasselblad was known for. And it's funny because it's actually the only Hasselblad that I own. People have asked me over the years, you know, so what Hasselblad gear did you buy while you were there? I never bought anything because I had $2 million in a warehouse and I had a consignment account and I always had Hasselblad gear at home. And when X-Pan came out, that was the, the, that was the main focus of the company when I left and I was given one that has a little engraved plate with my name on it. Uh, and I, it's a great, it's a great camera. It's a phenomenal camera. And I've got a, I've got another lens with it as well. But again, the industry was changing and digital was coming into play. So I can't give you much on the background, oh, except it's an amazing of- camera. I, I knew uh, from previous discussions that you were initially against it. And that's kind of what I wanted yeah. to, to hint at, because even if you got your, uh, your, your head kind of wrapped around the soul of this company, um, if it just stays the same the entire time, especially when you're having large industry transitions, then it might become obsolete. And a number of companies have have gone away because of that, because there was no change. There was no modification to the corporate mentality, the, to the product lines. And when the industry was no longer wanting those products, well, you've got nothing else to fall back on. Well, one of the things we were doing at the time that I wanted to change Hasselblad's reputation a little bit. Uh, Hasselblad was, was another foreign company operating in the United States. And I wanted to start doing some things that were giving back to the U S market and Hasselblad started to become very slowly, but we started to get much more active in, uh, charitable causes. Um, I was involved, I was on the, um, board of a group called photographers and friends united against AIDS that actually put together a, wow, 
uh, a million dollar campaign, which they raised $1 million um, selling fine art photography that went into the research and development of, of AIDS related uh, research. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm babbling here, It's all um, but it, it got us involved. Um, we, Ansel Adams Cadillac, I was on the board of the Center for Creative Photography in Tucson, and Virginia Adams donated Ansel's 77 Cadillac uh, to the center to help them raise money for their visiting scholar program. Uh, I still have the Zone 5 plate, which you've seen here on my wall, and That's Ansel's right. car keys in my desk drawer. But she donated it to the center on, on the uh, University of Arizona campus. Um, I wound up buying it with Hasselblad's money. Uh, for 10 grand. And then we turned around and sold it for 12 grand, which went to photographers and friends United against AIDS. And we put it together with a 500 CM. We had a then Bogan tripod before it became Manfrotto and a case of Kodak film. And I don't remember wh whether it was Tri-X. I, I have no idea what film, but it was a case of film that went with it. So it was sort of the entire Ansel Adams package. And that put us on the map because every magazine ran that full page ad free of charge because it was going back to charity. Um, later on, I sold Ansel Adams camera gear to Don Imus, who recently passed away for a hundred thousand dollars. And the money went to jointly to the Elizabeth Glazer, I can't talk, Elizabeth Glazer Pediatric AIDS Foundation. Uh, was I think got 75% and 25% went back to the University of Arizona. So there were these fundraisers that would come along that gave us an opportunity to give back something um, in the U.S. market because I wanted Hasselblad to start being perceived as an American company. And Hasselblad USA definitely was during that time. And, you know, I don't remember, I'm sure it happened from other companies, but the stories that you've just told, I don't remember anything to that same degree um, of, uh, of just uh, instilling goodwill in the people. And that comes right back at you. Like you had those uh, full page magazine ads and everything else that uh, helped shape what the brand would be. Uh, and during that era, I mean, I was not a photographer. Uh, and if I was, I was I was a child, I wouldn't be able to afford a Hasselblad. But still, it was it was an it was iconic, right? It had, uh, like, put it on a pedestal kind of status compared to a lot of other brands that were uh, solely marketed towards the consumers. And that's the stuff that I know my my parents would have been using um, nowhere near anything like a Hasselblad, but it's like you know the the branding that Cadillac had done and and everything else. It it, it puts value in the name, but that doesn't come out of thin air. It comes out of the people right. working hard behind the scenes in order to instill that value, and that was you, sir. Well, it was it it was me as the as as the person on the front line. But I have to say it again, we had an amazing group of people, um, some of the nicest, finest people that I have ever worked with. And it was just, it was such an incredible attitude uh, within the company. And being able to, I mean, I, I mentioned Imus a minute ago. Imus was a house account. He would come out with his driver and an envelope of cash, and he would buy, he shot Nikon and, and Hasselblad. And he would buy whatever he wanted in Hasselblad and, and leave. Jim Morton, um, who I'm still in touch with a lot today, is retired. And Jim would, would 
work with Imus on what he wanted. And then one day he came out and Ansel's camera gear had just been returned by Rod Dresser, who is one of Ansel's last assistants before Ansel passed away. And Rod called me one day and said, I have all this gear. I want to return it to you because Ansel told me to keep it uh, before he died and just use it. And when Hasselblad wants it back, they'll ask for it. Well, Ansel died. Victor Hasselblad died. Um, the paperwork disappeared. Nobody even knew it was out there. And Rod went ahead and returned this great camera case loaded with Ansel's equipment. And Imus was sitting in our conference room that one day with Jim Morton. And I, I said, come here, I got to show you what we just got. And we opened up this case and here's Ansel Adams gear. And we were selling it to raise money for charity. This is another lesson I learned, by the way. Um, Don immediately went on the air the next day and talked about what he had seen and said, I'm putting in my bid right now for $100,000. Now, we didn't ask him to do that. And he did that on his own. About a week later, I got a call from, um, I don't know if he's, he's still in that position, but um, he's obviously the founder of Oakley uh, and was president then. He called because he was a camera collector and had an interest in in Ansel's gear. And uh, Jim Gennard, by the way, all right. the founder of Oakley. And That's uh, it. He, went, he went on um, uh, after Oakley to found uh, Red Cameras. Okay, well, there it is. So, so Jim called me and he wanted to put in a bid and he wanted that equipment. And again, it was for charity as well. And I said, I'm really sorry. I've announced that it's going to be out there for a year until we get until we get a higher bid. And I hope you'll be the high bid then. He said, well, call me back then. Well, when we went to call back a year later, things had changed, business had changed, and his interest level had changed. And that's where I learned that old line about, you know, one in the hand is worth two in the bush. We had a, we had a, we had an interest, but I didn't do enough to cultivate it. And he was wonderful. I mean, he is a collector. Um, I haven't been in touch with him since that, that call, but when Imus got, here's another lesson. When Imus won the bid that morning, uh, I called and told him he's got it. And he was really pissed off. I don't think he planned on spending a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> he went on the air and said, well, I own all this gear of Ansel's. Now, Keep in mind that earlier he'd been comparing it to finding Babe Ruth's bat or Rembrandt's paintbrushes. So he said, I got hood, hoodwinked by Skip Cohen and the rest of those crooks at Hasselblad. Well, oh I, was, I was crushed. And I remember getting home that night and my wife saying to me, hang on, get it in perspective. Right after, before he slammed you, he slammed Dan Rather. And after you, he slammed Mother Teresa. So just get it in perspective. And that was another point that, I mean, it really did get it in perspective. He did, he did pay for the camera. We got our check exactly on time. It went into the charities. And a lot of people only knew him as a shock jock. He was amazing in terms of what he did for sudden infant death syndrome for so many different charities. And this was one of those. That $100,000 went right back into um, two nonprofits. That's a great story. And so uh, let, let's sort of uh, wrap up your time with uh, with Hasselblad, uh, because uh, I mean, you uh, when did you uh, leave uh, Hasselblad, and then what did you do next? Um, I left Hasselblad in I was there from eighty seven to ninety nine, 
And one day I was getting a little itchy. There weren't a lot of challenges. We had an incredible team. I wanted to do something different. And two guys came in that came out of, uh, wow, I don't remember anymore, consumer products like Procter & Gamble that wanted to start a company called Photo Alley. And the whole idea was to build an internet community that focused on education. But then as you came through all the classes, you went through the camera store. Um, in cyberspace, obviously, it, it was a virtual camera store, but um, they needed somebody that knew the photo industry. Their operation and all the development for Photo Alley was all on Bush Street in San Francisco, where, I mean, you literally had one giant room of developers with, you know, light bulbs hanging from pigtails in the ceiling. And they're going day and night developing all the, the software that was going to run, f- build the website. And this is also back at the time when the internet was exploding. Um, AOL, uh, Yahoo were unbelievably expensive in terms of advertising. There was an arrogant level out there that was arrogance that was just unbelievable. And also there was a philosophy that we're going to build a business. We're going to do a few million dollars in sales. We're not going to make any money, but in four or five years, we're going to sell it and make millions. And when the that internet, was, that was a pervasive mentality well, that, from a lot of companies. And then you it. had the bubble burst, right? The bubble burst in what? 2001, mm-hmm. um, worked with an amazing, I absolutely one of the best in the business. Uh, Jim O'Neill, I hired, uh, Jim came on board as our buyer and Jim managed, if I remember right, I want to go 14 turns of the inventory in a year with horrendous computer support. So in his head, um, he managed that, that inventory. So we were getting the turns, but we were losing money. And when the internet imploded, Photo Alley went upside down. And the one thing that saved both me and Jim in terms of our careers, we were the front office in New Jersey. The two owners, I mean, I'm the, I was the only president of any company that never saw a financial report. And they did not share that with us. So when they went under, it absolutely um, is what the fact that we had never been involved in any of the purchase decisions and anything financially is what pretty much saved Jim and I and our reputations because there were a number of major companies that got burnt, that extended credit. And when Photo Alley went, went under, there were hundreds of thousands of dollars that were being collected, you know, at a dime on the dollar. And Ritz Camera actually bought us out at that point. Um, Nobody made any money on it. Again, they bought the assets. And again, it was probably a dime on the dollar or something like that. Um, And off I went into the unemployment line, which was another, that's another lesson. And I don't know. I I, I guess so. Yeah. I feel I'm I'm going on forever here. You got to tell me. Oh, I, I'm uh, I'm absorbing this all like a sponge, as I'm sure all okay. the listeners are. Um, you know, it's it's quite the journey. And as soon as you are into an industry that is now uh, maybe feeling stagnant in some ways, and then you jump into something a little bit more dynamic, but dynamic also means risky. Uh, and those risks, even no matter how how best your efforts are, uh, can play against you. And so uh, the unemployment line, after such wonderful accolades and lessons learned, um, I mean, I, I know you're still active in the industry today. That's why we're still celebrating um, your, uh, your 50th anniversary of uh, those early days from, uh, uh, from Polaroid. So what happened next? And how did you get well, where we are right now to be talking to each other? 
<laughs> All right, I'm going to try and do the short version because I don't want right. to put your listeners to sleep. But um, um, Photo Alley has now disappeared. The million shares I had in Photo Alley, because I was doing the numbers all along. Wow, a million shares. And based on that original model, if we sell the company and those million shares, even if they only go for $2 a piece, uh, that's $2 million. I'm going to retire. I'm going to have my own island. It was meant to be a shortcut. And suddenly Photo Alley is gone and I'm out of a job. And everybody is saying, oh, come on. What are you worried about? You're Skip Cohen. Um, guess what? It doesn't matter who you are. When you're out of a job, you're out of a job. And panic started to set in. And I remember my accountant screaming at me to go collect my unemployment. And my pride was not going to let me go stand in the unemployment line after the career that I'd had up to that point. And I'm glad he forced me to do it because standing in the unemployment line, I found out that I'm not the only one that had to bury his pride a little. I'm not the only one that ever made a bad decision. And I'm not the only one that ever had a decision made that was completely out of his control that changed his career. So as I'm standing there talking to the guys around me, and it was everybody. It was everybody from, you know, a factory, a, a factory worker that was working on a production line somewhere to executives that were talking about standing out on the highway and holding a sign up that said, you know, we'll work for 99.5 or something like that. Um, we were all out of jobs. And at that point, um, Steve Sheenan and I were good friends. Steve owns range find, owned Rangefinder and WPPI. And he said, why don't you come out to California and I'll make you president. I'll be chairman of the board. I'm going to stay out of your hair. And that was when the move was made to move to California. To Santa, uh, uh, the office was in Santa Monica and Rangefinder at that point was a relatively small book. Uh, the show then, WPPI, was probably about 2,500 people. The last show before I came on board was at the Tropicana. But it was a show that had an incredible amount of spirit. And I'd gotten to know the show because every year when WPPI rolled around, there were a bunch of us that would go out early just to help Steve and his team whether it was collating literature in bags or hanging prints for a print competition, we all would come out two or three days before the show. It didn't matter what your role was going to be. I mean, on the day of the show, back in those days, this is this is before we all went casual. Um, if I was going to be in a double-breasted suit, um, that was the look when I was on the trade show floor once the show started. But prior to that, you know, I'd be in cutoffs and a t-shirt and we're stuffing bags. Um, we're helping right. Marlene put together things that she needed to get the show going. So Steve made me an offer and that's when I went out to WPPI and Rangefinder. That was around 2001. And once again, we had an amazing team and we built an incredible team. In fact, uh, George Vernakis was the uh, director of sales that we, we hired back. Uh, George had left the company a couple of years earlier. Um, he came back in and between George and Arlene Evans, who is operating with, with WPPI today and Bill Herter, that was kind of the team that, that started, all right, how are we going to make this magazine and the show the biggest? And, and we did, I mean, we got it up to around 15,000 attendees at the show. I know that the last I, I don't. I didn't follow magazines after this, but I know the last magazine that I was involved with in 2009 uh, was around 350 or 360 pages. 
And again, that was also at a time in the industry where things were changing. Uh, Digital technology had changed. Websites um, were growing. Our ability to produce an online magazine um, was shifting. Uh, With George and Bill's help, we launched After Capture, which was incredibly fun. I mean, I learned a lot in those days from George. George came in one day with a copy of Men's Health. And he said, why can't we do this? And he tossed it on my desk. Well, it was paginated. When I turned it over, it was two magazines in one paginated in two different directions. So you looked at one side, it was men's health. You looked at the other side, I don't know, it was men's travel or men's exercise or something. And it was a favorite of George's. And the idea to put two magazines together in one publication like that um, was something that we worked long and hard on. And we pitched it that following fall at uh, the New York show, which was then called just Photo East. And we had everybody we had everybody on board. Um, we made everybody sign confidentiality agreements. We made a big deal out of it. We showed them a presentation about what we wanted to do. And the difference was that after capture was about literally everything you did after the shutter button was pushed. And again, right. these were working with George, Bill Herter, in fact, the whole crew we had. Well, and, and that, that kind of industry is changing quite a bit. I, yeah. I remember um, popular photography was kind of seeing the writing on the walls and uh, decided, okay, well, let's try to, to branch out into other, uh, uh, other markets because the magazine market is disappearing. And they, uh, they produced a book. It was called uh, um, Take Your Best Shot, I think. And they had approached me uh, to, to have an image in there as just a, a fisheye photograph of the Eiffel Tower, which I guess should be to some degree a compliment because I'm not the first person to take that exact same image, but they really liked mine. And so they published that. Um, and that's the only book that they published because uh, they realized, hey, it's not just the periodical market. It's this whole uh, dead tree edition of stuff that's just not going anywhere, uh, you know, conducive to these large footprint organizations anymore. Uh, and reevaluate, uh, reform, or just shut down. And uh, I also wrote for many years for Outdoor Photography Canada magazine, which was, you know, put together on a on a shoestring budget, you know, with a very small footprint. Um, but even then, uh, the subscribership and the advertising budgets, the advertising budget was a huge help for these publications and that all shifted online. And if you couldn't transition your value to that and to that market, then, uh, your revenue just dries right up. Well, I remember a good friend at Kodak telling me, and this is going back, uh, just a couple of years before I joined Hasselblad that she had one year where she had $53 million in discretionary budget money. And wow. that's when Polaroid was a uh, Polaroid Kodak was publishing all the day in the life books. And they were doing these incredible books and Ray DeMoulin, who we also, the industry lost was an amazing man. And Ray was VP of the professional products group. And Ray was doing so many unique things. And there were schools out there that were getting incredible grants from, from Kodak. And Kodak was a sponsor of so many different marketing programs and different kinds of educational programs. And there were things happening all the time because that kind of money was there. Well, by the time you got all the way out, you know, 10 years later, you're now into the mid to late nineties, you're starting to come into 2000, the internet implodes. Um, Now everything starts to change. The magazine world is changing. I mean, 
2009. I don't know if that was the largest magazine that Rangefinder ever had. Um, I'm not suggesting that it, it dropped because, because I left, but the industry was dramatically changing. And it's sad to me that, you know, just within the last couple of weeks, they announced that Rangefinder was no longer going to be published in print, but was going to be an online edition. And we're still part of an industry that, that likes to touch a photograph. I, yeah. There are certain magazines that I cherish because I can actually read my magazine. I don't want to read it on my phone or my laptop. I want to be able to have that magazine in my hands. And that's and where I, I'm everything, working on a, I'm everything working was on a changing book right now. Yep. And th- this new book, um, I have it available as, as a physical book and as an ebook. And right. the number of sales, it's about two to one physical versus digital. People right. still like to have that tangible item. Not everybody, mind you, I get that. But um, it's, it's unfortunate that we don't always vote with our wallets because while we like it we're not going to subscribe to physical periodicals as much as we used to um and that's just a transition that the industry has to embrace because it's there and there's kind of no turning back with the way that we consume our content no and it's and it's changing i mean right now as you and i are talking i mean you look at things that are happening now on youtube you look at all the places that we hang out on the internet um, the way we share images is phenomenal. And I'll just, I'll, I'll finish that, your original question. In 2009, I decided it was time to see if I could walk the talk and go out on my own. And that's brought me to where I am today. So I started um, MEI, which stands for Marketing Essentials International. Uh, it really is nothing more than an umbrella for me to stand under and do the things I like to do. In 2013, we lost Skip Cohen University. Um, as a educa- as an educational resource online, it was launched with help from a bunch of really good friends, including Scott Bourne, who is the one person that said to me, gee, Skip, what do you think would happen if you just focused all your energy in one spot? Because I was writing for three different blogs, two of them were mine, and that's when SCU became what it is. Uh, Scott and his crew helped get it built, and, you know, here we are. Well, and, and I remember there was some uh, great moments along the way where uh, basically you kind of relaunched yourself as your own brand uh, at that <laughs> point. Uh, but then, uh, you know, uh, notable names like uh, Guy Kawasaki basically said, hey, Skip Cohen's back, right? Well, Scott, Scott Bourne had an idea um, on the day we were going to launch was January 19th, 2013. And that just sticks in my mind and will always be there. And Scott said, just don't do anything for a day or two. And Scott went ahead and put out a tweet that said, Skip Cohn is back. And um, Guy Kawasaki, who I met several years later, um, retweeted it, said something like, where's he been, even though he didn't know me. Scott Kelby said something like, well, wait a minute, I just saw him or, or something like that. And just the whole idea was Skip Cohen is back. And that was that was Scott's genius as how do we brand this? And from there, um, we just started to collect content. I learned more and more about um, good content on organic content. There is that line about if you build it, they will come. And it's true. Mm -hmm. And if you look at that right up to today and things that, I mean, you and I were just together for the launch of Platyball, um, that Platypod introduced with a Kickstarter campaign on the grid with Scott Kelby a few weeks ago. 
And drove all the way down to Florida for that. That's right. Um, and and insisted on driving to Tampa from here, even though I was willing to take the load off and drive. Uh, it was fun. It was great. But if you look at everything, all those lessons, that, there's a great line and it sounds sappy, but Alfred Lord Tennyson has a line from Ulysses that went, I'm a part of all that I've met. When each of us look at what we're doing today, we're all the collection of everybody that's come into our lives, every disappointment, every success, every sad moment, every laughter, all those things make us who we are. And when I look at my career and say, you know, I'm a part of all that I've met, well, God, it's been, it's been 50 years of great stuff. Not always great stuff at the time, but one lesson after another that's come up that that I'm still using today. And like I said, right into, you know, this recent Kickstarter campaign. And, uh, you know, it, it's great to see that evolve. That's an ongoing thing as we uh, as we record this. Uh, and so if anybody's curious to see what Skip is helping out with, you can always check out platyball.com. Um, and uh, what's next? I mean, what what is the lesson you're going to learn tomorrow? Wow. Um. Uh, I think it's going to have something to do with procrastinating because I have three different books that I've started. I've written six books with partners and I want to do my own book. And one relates to more education and how to run your business. I mean, there's some basics that are really being missed by photographers today. There are things that I learned from my grandfather, you know, a firm handshake, looking somebody in the eye when you're talking to them. Uh, there are a lot of really good basics out there. And if you combine them with today's technology and SEO and cyberspace and everything else that's going on, you could really come up with a very high power, high profile kind of campaign to get your point across and build a business. Um, so that's one. And the other is just having some fun with just all the crazy stories that I have. I mean, I've got enough in my head for, for a sitcom on things that happen it in the could, photo this industry. This conversation could be a 500-page book. That's right. You know, if you fully fleshed it out. Well, I'll give you I'll give you one just one of my favorites. But going back to my early Polaroid days, we were working with silver nitrate. Uh, silver nitrate when it gets on your skin, you don't see it at all, but go out into the sight uh, into the sunlight. It gives you and, sunburn, right? Yeah, it turns well. No, it turns jet black. I mean, well, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that, that, yeah and uh, when it's out there for long enough. Right. And we had a guy, I can't remember Frank's last name, but there was a silver nitrate spill in the lab and he's got on his hush puppies with socks and he's cleaning it up and it's not, it's not dangerous. You're going to wash it off. And it's, it's late in the day. He goes home in the dark. He gets home. He's fine. He's on the beach the next day. And his wife says, Frank, take your socks off. Well, he'd lay down in the sunlight and his feet right up to the ankle line on his socks um, had turned jet black, um, looking like he had on black socks while staying at the beach. That's hilarious. And it was just, it, it, it's things like that and certainly, and certainly better ones, but they're all, they're all lessons. And there's another, you know, it's, it's sort of like a, uh, it's, it's lighter. It's a lighter. I, I would, it's a lighter book on stories that of things that happen in the photo industry. 
I'd read that book cover to cover. I All mean, right. and I hope people have been listening to uh, to this conversation from beginning to end. Uh, Skip, I, I really want to thank you for being here, specifically on the day, that the 50th anniversary. <laughs> the 50th of anniversary being. today. Yeah. Uh, so I'm glad we could um, kind of mark that with this conversation. But moving forward, if people want to get in touch with you, if people want to see what you're up to uh, in the industry, uh, which I hope will continue for many years to come, where can people find you? Everything you'll find me doing is at skipcohenuniversity.com. I'm also Skip Cohen on Twitter. I'm Skip Cohen on Facebook. Although on Facebook, you will never see me post, oh boy, I just had yogurt, yum, yum. I use Facebook <laughs> strictly for business and marketing. Um, and also my email is skip at mei500.com. And you can also get me on skip at platypod.com. And I answer my email relatively fast unless you get stuck in my spam folder. But if anybody's ever got any questions, one of the things that I absolutely learned early on, and I'll remind everybody out there, when you're stuck on something, don't be afraid to ask for help. That's, That's the amazing. power of yep. so many different forums on Facebook now. And I'm involved in a couple that are really, really good at giving people a little help. And, you know, the friendship you and I have is based on a lot of that, where we've done things and worked on projects together. So just remember, you're not out there alone. And instead of struggling, um, build your network and then use your network when you're stuck um, yeah, and I ask mean, for help. And the, give the it when somebody asks you. Exactly. The, the network of photographers out there, if anybody asks me for help, I'm always willing to provide. But when I have questions about an area that I have never explored before, um, the wealth of knowledge that is freely given today uh, from people that you don't even know, but might be a part of the same community, the, the, the larger community of just being another photographer uh, kind of binds us all together in this wonderful social media world that we are in right now. And I like to think, Skip, that in some small way, you help bring us to the photographic industry that we have today. So thank you very well, much for that. Thank you. And I'm flattered to get those words from you. But I got to tell you, I didn't do it without a mess of really good friends and a lot of help. We're part of an amazing industry. And I'll, I'll hit you with one last line that sounds like a magazine article reading itself. But everybody, no matter where you are in this industry or what you do, keep in mind of what the world would look like without photography. And with the exception of modern medicine, I don't think there's any career field that's given the world more than imaging has. And it doesn't matter whether you're making, you know, widgets for a tripod somewhere or you're actually on the front line um, as a photographer. Think about what it is that we help give the world. And it's it's a pretty amazing career. So, I couldn't have said it any better. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, thank you, buddy. Thank you.